0: I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward,
1: a new vision will govern our land.
0: Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terence Eagle a podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode...
0: Pinpoint strikes against terrorists, claim the Russians. As ever, in war, such claims should be treated with extreme caution. I've made it clear that we will hunt down terrorists who threaten our country wherever they are. They are moving in vast numbers. We
1: haven't made any progress to speak of. But first... Here's what happened in the world this week. Desert locusts entered the Congo last week, marking the first time the hugely destructive insect has been seen in the region in 75 years. Locust swarms that have already entered Kenya, Somalia, and Uganda are now the worst they've seen in 70 years. The threat of the insects is really severe. Swarms can grow to the size of cities and decimate crops and pasture for animals. And the regions being struck with the invaders are already suffering from complex internal conflicts and Ebola and measles outbreaks. The UN has updated its funding request to address the issue before it becomes a disaster, asking for nearly twice as much aid money, up to $138 million, saying the need for help is urgent. Soldiers in Uganda have been battling the locusts with handheld sprays, but experts say the only effective strategy is an aerial assault. The president has signed a presidential proclamation temporarily suspending the entry into the United States of foreign nationals who pose a risk of transmitting the 2019 novel coronavirus. In the coronavirus corner, countries around the world stepped up their attempts at containment as the number of cases continues to soar around the world. Saudi Arabia shut down access to the holy city of Mecca, potentially cutting off access to millions of pilgrims trying to make the visit. In Iran, which has been the front line for infections in the Middle East, uh, the government loosened its rules for importing foreign goods in order to let in sanitizers, face masks, and other things needed to stop the spread of the virus. And in the country's capital, the overhead handles were removed from subway cars in order to eliminate a major source of germs and spread. In France, the government has banned indoor gatherings of more than 5,000 people and has recommended people stop greeting each other by kissing. And finally, South Korea, the hardest hit country outside of China, passed a law that triples the fine and adds the possibility of a year in prison to anyone found in violation of mandatory self-isolation. Violent clashes between police and residents erupted on the Greek islands of Lesbos and Chios. For the past five years, these islands have served as the main entry point for migrants and refugees, leaving the Middle East and Asia for Europe. Under a deal signed in 2016 between Turkey and the European Union, migrants have to stay on these islands in Greece until their asylum claims are processed. If their claim is rejected, they're supposed to be sent to Turkey but the asylum process has been beset with delays, and returns to Turkey have been minimal. In the meantime, nearly 60,000 migrants arrived on Greek islands last year alone, and the camps are well beyond capacity. To deal with the situation, government immigration officials plan to build more restrictive detention centers to replace the squalid migrant camps, but residents see this as a sign that the number of migrants will just keep spiraling out of control. So, strikes and protests on Wednesday dissolved into violence with over 50 police officers and 10 protesters injured. An angry mob on Chios even broke into a hotel used by riot police, beat up resting officers, and threw out their belongings. Tunisia finally has a new government after four months of standstill and infighting among a number of rival political parties. After the elections in October, the Islamist party Ennahda came out on top but wasn't able to win a majority. And in the months that followed, it failed to reach a compromise or form a coalition with the other parties and decide who would run the government. President Kais Saied threatened to call a new election. But business and union leaders around the country intervened, trying to force diplomacy between the different parties. And the fruits of their labor were finally realized after a 15-hour debate on Wednesday led to a resolution early Thursday. Elias Foucault, a former tourism and finance minister, was designated prime minister by the president and he'll lead a coalition government. Tunisia is a really young democracy, only in existence since the government overthrow during the 2011 Arab Spring. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Last week, I talked about the origins of the nine-year-long Syrian civil war. And incredibly, just in the past week, the conflict has changed and escalated a lot, which just goes to show how volatile the war really is. On Thursday, 33 Turkish soldiers were killed in an airstrike in the Syrian province of Idlib, It's still not clear if the aircraft that carried out the strike was one from the Syrian army or Russia, which is back in Syria. But either way, it marked the deadliest day for Turkish forces in the conflict since the war began. It was such a serious escalation that there were even fears things could devolve into an all-out war between Russia and Turkey. President Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan spoke over the phone on Friday in an attempt to de-escalate tensions. To try to understand why Russia and Turkey are on the brink of war in Syria, let me pick up where I left off last week and explain how Russia came to enter the fray and totally transform it. And by the way, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, definitely pause here and listen to that one first.
2: They judge us. They say, uh, do this, do this, do this. You cannot even say no. They control us. The man you're hearing asked us not to use his real name and asked to have his voice altered to protect his identity. He is an activist who several weeks ago fled his hometown of Raqqa in northern Syria. He says his city changed in January 2014 when the terrorist group known as the Islamic State or ISIS took over Raqqa and made it their home base. Since then, in many ways, ISIS
1: runs Raqqa like a police state. That was from an investigation by The Wall Street Journal. To back up a bit. In 2013, a couple years into the conflict, the rebel forces were by no means close to victory. They were not only battling the Syrian government, but Iran as well, President Bashad al-Assad's closest ally. The government forces used chemical weapons to kill hundreds of its civilians in the name of quashing the rebels, who they termed terrorists. And meanwhile, Western powers like the US weren't doing much to intervene, even though they announced support for the rebels and condemnation of Assad. In spite of all this, the Syrian rebels actually managed to seize control of several cities across Syria. They took over a lot of districts in Aleppo, the largest city in Syria. And they held control of Homs and Dara for a while. And battles were constantly going on in the capital of Damascus. In the northern city of Raqqa, they managed to take control as well. But mere months after being liberated from Assad's regime, Syrians found themselves under the control of an even more merciless and uncompromising foe, ISIS. ISIS started as an offshoot of al-Qaeda, but quickly evolved into a totally separate terrorist organization, and became an enemy of Al-Qaeda. Their mission was to form an Islamic state that would abide by strict Sharia law. As they took over regions like Raqqa, they transformed them into terrifying police states where public executions were commonplace things. This is from the same Wall Street Journal investigation.
2: Some ISIS executions happen in public. These onlookers in Raqqa watch a graphic scene of a man who's been crucified. In another scene, executioners stand ready. Abu Ibrahim says people in Raqqa are even too afraid to speak against ISIS in their own homes. Like many young Syrians, the activists were first motivated to drive President Bashar al-Assad from power. Raqqa residents cheered after moderate rebels took control of the city in March 2013. But almost a year later, ISIS seized control, and that's when things changed. The activists told us that they have seen schools and universities shut down. And they say educators were given a list of new rules outlined in this document. All mentions of Syria should be replaced with the Islamic State.
1: Now that ISIS was marching across the region, recruiting followers by the thousand all over the world, and uploading beheadings to YouTube, Western powers finally had a reason to enter the conflict.
0: I made it clear that we will hunt down terrorists who threaten our country wherever they are. That means I will not hesitate to take action against ISIL in Syria, as well as Iraq. This is a core principle of my presidency. If you threaten America, you will find no safe haven.
1: So the U.S. enters the Syrian conflict, but is careful to target ISIS forces in the region, not Assad's regime, even though they condemn the regime and support the rebels. The biggest U.S. ally on the ground in the fight against ISIS are the Kurds, Now the Kurds are an ethnic group in Syria and Turkey who have never had their own state, but have always wanted one. When the Syrian civil war broke out in 2011, the Kurds in the north of Syria kind of took the opportunity to informally secede from Syria. They formed a military group called the YPG and took over the Kurdish territory from Assad to form their own state that they called Rojava. So the Kurds are mostly about defending their own independence, But this makes them opposed to Assad in support of the Syrian rebels and deeply opposed to ISIS. With the help of the US, YPG joined up with other Arab militias in Syria to form an alliance called the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, which would work together to defeat ISIS. So if all this isn't confusing enough, it's about to get a lot messier because Turkey sees the Kurds very differently from the US. In Turkey, there's a group called the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which has been fighting for independence from Turkey for ages. Turkey sees the Turkish Kurds, that make up PKK, and the Syrian Kurds, that make up YPG, as indistinguishable, although the U.S. and other Western countries would disagree. But Turkey has denounced PKK, and by extension YPG, as a terrorist organization. But if you remember from the last episode, Turkey is on the side of the rebels in Syria. They helped to supply weapons to rebel forces since the conflict started, and in 2016 they would actually formally invade Syria against Assad's forces. So this puts Turkey and the U.S., two countries who should be on the same page as far as it comes to fighting in Syria and supporting the rebels, very much at odds with each other because Turkey hates the Kurds, and the U.S. is close friends with them. But going back to 2014 again, the takeover by ISIS would seem to put a lot of these conflicting forces somewhat on the same team, at least as far as their mutual desire of destroying ISIS goes. It definitely had that appearance at first. Russia, for example, is a longtime foe of the U.S. and Turkey and an ally of Assad. But when Russia finally entered the Syrian conflict, it promised, just like the U.S., to only attack ISIS, not to support Assad, and not to attack the rebels. But unlike the U.S., which really did leave the civil conflict alone and targeted ISIS, Russia didn't do that at all.
0: Some hours before these scenes in Talbisa, a Russian three-star general had called in at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad to say, we are bombing Syria in one hour. Russia to America, we are bombing IS targets in Syria. Please stay out of the airspace while we do it. America to Russia, you're not bombing IS, and we're bombing Aleppo anyway. The Russian top priority in Syria protect their coastal bases and President Assad's Alawite heartland, Tartus and Latakia. They need to secure their main airbase at Basel al Assad Airport. All are under threat as anti Assad rebels, not IS, sweep southwest. It's unclear who launched this airstrike, but this has been day one of a new dimension to Syria's old war. The day Russia and America got out their kit and added to the bloodshed with very little trust or cooperation on the ground or in the sky.
1: That was Channel 4 News. So by 2015, the Syrian rebel forces are being battered by three countries essentially with increasingly deadly firepower. The Syrian government itself. Iran, and now Russia. Plus, the supposedly sympathetic ISIS forces are moving into rebel-held territories to terrorize them more than all three of these countries combined. Russia never really did target ISIS. Since entering the war, they've always been about supporting Assad. The reasons for supporting Assad are many-fold. They want to protect some valuable ports and army bases they have along the western coast of Syria. The Assad regime in Syria is a really important ally of theirs in the Middle East. And it always looks good for President Putin to look like he's standing up to whatever the U.S. is doing. At this point, it should be pretty clear why millions of Syrians found it absolutely impossible to survive on this country-wide battlefield and fled abroad. The Syrian population just before the conflict was about 21 million people. As of today, 5.6 million Syrians have fled the country as refugees, and another 6.2 million are internally displaced within Syria. Just think about those numbers for a second. More than half of the country's entire population has been uprooted by this war. It's absolutely staggering. Of the 16 or 17 million Syrians still in the country, 70% live in poverty today. Most of the refugees are in Turkey, which has since closed its border to more Syrians because there are already 3.6 million seeking refuge there. This has had ripple effects throughout Europe. The number of Syrian refugees is larger than the entire population of Norway. So it's an entire nation's worth of people trying to find safe haven. And with Turkey more than at capacity, refugees have fled across to Greece and from there into Europe if possible. Many of the Syrian refugees are living in camps, some of them so large they feel more like cities. This is PBS News exploring the biggest camp for Syrian refugees called Zaatari in Jordan.
2: It's been months now since Dalal al-Absi last saw her husband. In January, she says, government forces attacked their village in a rebel-controlled area in southwestern Syria. Several of their relatives, including children, were killed. A short time later, she fled the country with her own kids her husband stayed behind. I came to Jordan in spite of myself. I didn't want to come, but my husband made me for the sake of our children so that they can stay safe. He saw his brother's children getting killed and he told me to run. This is where she came, to the Zaatari refugee camp, about 10 miles across the border from Syria in northern Jordan. The camp opened only a year ago, but as the civil war
1: back home has escalated, Its population has swelled. Back in Syria, ISIS was gradually losing ground. By 2017, the multinational effort to defeat ISIS was successful and reclaimed basically all of the vast territory that ISIS had gained across Iraq and Syria. But this didn't mean things were improving for the rebels. In 2016, Assad's regime retook Aleppo from the rebels, and in 2017, they carried out one of the deadliest chemical weapons attacks against their own civilians, which prompted an unprecedented response from the U.S. and its new president. My fellow Americans, on Tuesday, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad launched a horrible chemical weapons attack on innocent civilians. Using a deadly nerve agent... Assad choked out the lives of helpless men, women, and children. Tonight, I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. The chemical weapons attack also prompted another diplomatic intervention by the UN. For the eighth time, the UN tried to draft a resolution to de-escalate the Syrian conflict and condemn the use of chemical weapons. But since Russia is one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, they just use their veto power every time to veto any UN resolution. In Geneva, a number of peace talks were held over the years, trying to bring the various forces to a resolution, but they all failed. We haven't made any progress to... speak of. Uh, uh, As far as I know there was immense hope uh, when this conference started. I understand that already people are starting to feel disappointed. What I can tell them is that uh, things have gone so far down that uh, uh, they are not going to get out of the ditch uh, overnight. The first breakthrough towards at least a ceasefire, or I should say a ceasefire zone, came in September 2018. Turkey, Russia, and Iran held a summit to discuss the Syrian conflict and specifically the province of Idlib, which is the last rebel-held region of Syria. There were a lot of terms to the deal. First, a demilitarized zone, DMZ, would be set up within the rebel-held territory in Idlib. Any conflict within that zone would be prohibited. Most importantly, the Syrian army would refrain from attacks in Idlib. Second, radical jihadist groups like an al-Qaeda-backed one called HTS that had started gaining control in Idlib would have to leave the DMZ immediately. Third, moderate groups like the Turkish forces could stay in the DMZ but would have to remove heavy weaponry. Fourth, the HTS-run government, called the Syrian Salvation Government, would be dissolved. And finally, Turkey would use its network of observation posts to secure the rebel-held DMZ, while Russia and Iran would use their own military posts to secure the government-held region just outside the DMZ. Obviously, this deal had a lot of questions and issues. Like, how are you going to force the radical terrorists to leave? They're not even signatories on the deal. But despite its holes, the ceasefire was basically respected for a while. There were intermittent attacks enough to make life in Idlib still one of daily anxiety, but no out-and-out campaigns to retake the region or anything like that. But that all changed about two months ago.
0: This is meant to be a de-escalation zone, but even after almost nine years of war, there is no de-escalation around Idlib. President Assad and his Russian allies are determined to destroy this last rebel enclave. The intensity of the attacks has increased in recent days, so too the number of deaths. In a war known for the depths of its depravity, Idlib's plight may yet become the most desperate so far. (laughs) That attack killed seven members of Fida Agar's family. He gathers the dead, including his mother, his wife and his two children. The youngest was just one month old.
1: That was ITV News. In December 2019, Assad's forces, backed by Russia and Iran, began a campaign to retake Idlib. This squeezed the civilians of Idlib between, on the one hand, an encroaching government army that doesn't shy away from torture and chemical weapons and, on the other hand, a closed border to Turkey. And in the middle, they're also suffering under the control, in some areas, of an al-Qaeda-backed terrorist organization, HDS. Not to mention that it's now the dead of winter. So Syrians are fleeing their homes in Idlib for God knows what safe haven beyond and starving or freezing to death en route to nowhere really. In the case of one fleeing family, the father managed to find a kerosene heater to heat his family's tent, but he inadvertently asphyxiated them and the family died in the night. This is why the situation today in Idlib is poised to become the worst humanitarian crisis in a nine-year conflict that has been nothing but destruction and inhumanity. Hopefully something will change in the coming weeks, and hopefully the talk between Turkey and Russia on Friday will have moved the needle a bit. But to be honest, it's really not clear how the million and a half civilians of Idlib are going to survive this. If you want to help out, Amnesty International has opened an emergency appeal to help Syrians in Idlib. You can donate on their website. That's our show for this week. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel.